Well, you know, uh, one of the most common uh, big questions when it comes to things like philosophy and religion that people often ask is, why am I here? Right? People want to know what the purpose of their existence is. Why was I put here on this earth to begin with? And for Christians, uh, we often frame that question within the context of our calling, of course, right? What, what is God calling me to do with my life? And of course, we wrestle with that question a lot because the Bible isn't really that specific when it comes to our individual daily lives. Right? I have yet to find the verse in the Bible that says Rob Rucci is supposed to start a church in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina in the month of October, the year of our Lord, 2012. And I'm pretty sure that's not in there. I certainly couldn't find it back in March of 2012 when Mary Beth and I were at the end of our time living in Alaska trying to figure out what in the world we were supposed to do next. I mean, that, that verse would have been extremely helpful in speeding up the process of moving back here and starting a church, which, by the way, we're absolutely convinced was God's will for us and is God's will for us, and yet, that verse just isn't in the Bible. What is there, however, what is, in fact, all throughout Scripture is the call of Christ for us to follow Him and what that looks like for all Christians across the board, okay? Jesus was very clear about what following him would look like for everyone who would ever make that decision. The Apostle Paul was very clear what following Jesus would look like in your own life. Uh, the Apostle Peter and the other biblical writers, those early followers of Christ, they were crystal clear about what would be required of us and what it would cost us every single one of us, to follow Jesus Christ. And yet beyond those uh, common characteristics that are to define the life of every believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we just don't have written in his word specific detailed information concerning each individual personal choice that we're confronted with day after day in each one of our individual lives, right? I'm talking about things like which house should I buy? Which city should I live in? Right? Which job should I take? Which person should I marry? Or which church should I go to? And on and on it goes. And of course, uh, of course, the Spirit of Christ who lives inside of every Christian is as active today as he has ever been. And he, he speaks today just as he always has. So, of course, we're to rely on his guidance and wisdom for those kinds of decisions in our daily lives because we have to. And yet, if you think about it, it begs the question, why? Why didn't God in all of his infinite wisdom and absolute sovereignty and foreknowledge, in addition to his holy scriptures, why didn't he just write a personal note to every single believer who would ever follow him, outlining detailed instructions for every single decision that we would ever be faced with each day of our individual lives? Right? And before you dismiss that idea as totally ridiculous or impossible, just remember who it is we're talking about here. The same God who spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. The same God who directed a giant sea creature, probably a whale, to swallow a man whole and then spit him back out three days later. Right? The same God who made a donkey speak. 
The same God whose hand supernaturally appeared to write a message on a wall to a Babylonian king. Seriously, if God wanted to, certainly it is within the realm of his ability to include with the birth of each one of us a written message outlining the specifics of each day of our lives in detail. So why didn't he? Why go to all the trouble of giving us this masterpiece of a written word for our lives if it is insufficient to guide us through each day of our lives? Well, maybe, maybe it is not insufficient. Maybe it is, in fact, everything that we need to know about why we're here and how we're supposed to live our lives while we're here. The Apostle Paul said that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. It's interesting, isn't it? Paul says that God's written word is there for us so that we may be complete. Equipped, meaning that by his written word, we would have all that we need to know how we should live every single day that he has called us to live on this good earth. Well, then why, uh, well, then why send the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth, Acts 1.8. In other words, my word is there to tell you why you are here and how to live your life while you are here. My spirit is there to empower you to be able to live your life according to my word. And again, uh, Paul certainly talks about us being led by the spirit in Romans 8 and again in, I think, Galatians 5. So I'm not in any way trying to diminish the role of the Holy Spirit in guiding us through daily decisions in life. The truth is, I wouldn't make it successfully through one day without the Holy Spirit's power and guidance in my own life. But the point remains, God gave us his written Word to complete us and equip us for every single day of this life that he's called us to, which means we cannot be complete or equipped to do what he's called us to do without it. We cannot bypass the word of God each day and simply pray, hoping that somehow the Holy Spirit will tell us what to do apart from the word of God. But do you understand that's exactly how countless Christians try to make it through their lives every single day. They say they're relying on God to guide them through life while at the very same time almost completely ignoring his word on the matter. You see, you will never, you will never be able to take hold of God's calling for your life if you're not willing to take hold of what his written word says about your life. Because what his word says about, about why you're here and how you're supposed to live while you're here, that is so much more important than which house you end up living in, what car you end up driving, and how much money you end up making, and all the other things that we spend so much of our lives fretting over. Notice when the Apostle Paul talks about calling, He doesn't talk about which house God wants him to live in or what kind of tents he should make or even what the churches would be like that he plants in each city that he travels to. No, when Paul talks about his calling, he says things like, Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Romans 1, 1 through 6. Can you see how much bigger Paul's vision for his calling was? How much bigger his vision was for the reason he was put here on this earth than simply where he would live and his personal preferences for each day of his life? Again, I'm not, I'm not saying those decisions don't matter. But what I am saying is, we need to have the kind of vision for our lives and calling that Paul had. The kind of vision that this life has been given to us for reasons so much bigger than having the right house or the right position at work or the right kind of financial portfolio or the title that we desire or the type of lifestyle that suits our individual tastes. Because this life is so much bigger than all of those temporal things and there's so much more at stake than our personal preferences along the way. You see, the, the reason we're here is about so much more and that so much more is all written in his word. Which is why Paul was able to say that the scriptures were enough to make us complete and equipped for every good work. Because even though the Bible doesn't tell us which house to buy or which job to take or which school to put our kids in or even which church to go to. It does tell us who we are. Tells us how we're to conduct our lives as followers of Jesus Christ, which is infinitely more important and, listen, infinitely more formative information to have for our lives and our calling than all of the other things that most of us spend the majority of our time obsessing over. And so, actually, it's a very good question for us to ask why am I here? But it's also very important that we understand where to find the answers to that question because you will never find it in the constantly changing convictions of popular culture, which, by the way, loves to tell us what we should be living for on any given day. You will never find it in the possessions that you amass in this life, no matter how good they make you feel. You will never find it in a social cause or even in great humanitarian works no matter how great they are because the answer to the question, why am I here, it can only be found in one place and that is in the Holy Spirit breathed written word of God. So the reason I bring all of this up today is because in our story, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through Paul's letter to the Colossians, we find Paul in a Roman prison being asked by the pastor of the church at Colossae to give him and the church members some specific guidance concerning some false teachers who have been influencing the church there to the point that the church is really beginning to suffer to struggle and even come apart. So uh, this is a bit of an urgent request. Uh, and this pastor, it's a man named Epaphras, 
need some specific direction from Paul. He needs some specific answers in how to deal with these serious problems in their church. And he needs them like, like right now. And so what does Paul do? Well, he spends most of the first chapter of the letter before he addresses anything specifically. He spends the first part of the, of the first chapter just encouraging this pastor and his church with a powerful message about hope, which we looked at last week. Paul says, first of all, look, before I get into a lot of specific answers for you, you need to know that no matter what you're going through, no matter how deep the struggle, there is hope for you and your church, no matter how bad it is. And then in the last part of chapter 1 and the first part of chapter 2, which we're covering today, Paul still doesn't address the specific problems confronting the church. It's the whole reason Epaphras is there to begin with. So why doesn't Paul address these issues yet? Well, it's because Paul's vision for the church is so much bigger than just these issues, as important as they are. So Paul takes the time first, after encouraging the church to be hopeful, he takes the time to simply remind the believers then, and today in fact, why we're here to begin with, right? To keep our focus on the parts of this life as followers of Christ that matter absolutely the most, so that we will be equipped to deal with all the other parts that certainly will happen along the way. So with that in mind, Let's jump back into the story right where we left off last week at Colossians chapter 1 and we'll begin by reading verses 24 through 27. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So right after talking about the hope that we have in Christ through most of the first chapter, Paul starts talking about his sufferings and consequently our sufferings as well. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. And when Paul refers to what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, he's referring to the future suffering of everyone like himself who will ever be afflicted for the sake of the gospel because that is one of the primary means by which God communicates his gospel to others. All right? When when we read all throughout the scriptures the fact that as followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to live like he lived, those passages are inclusive of, and I would even say primarily referring to his sufferings. It's one of the most unpopular Christian teachings in the American church today, by the way, and consequently one of the most avoided of them all. But again, Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. You see, Paul says, I'm suffering to make the word of God fully known. As Paul suffers for Christ, and as we suffer for Christ, the gospel is advanced. 
It's the entire reason behind Christian suffering to begin with and therefore a substantial part of the reason that you and I happen to be here on this earth. Paul says we are here to share in Christ's sufferings. And yet I'm telling you, this teaching, it was so common among the early followers of Christ in the first century AD, but it has become increasingly uncommon within the church today because, of course, nobody wants to suffer, right? Yet Paul said, I rejoice in my sufferings. That just seems like an odd thing for someone to say, but for those early Christians it wasn't odd at all because they understood that suffering for the sake of the gospel was actually a part of their calling. It was a part of their purpose. Paul said his suffering for the early church was according to the stewardship from God that was given to him. When he says stewardship, by the way, he used the ancient Greek word oikonomia. It was a, a very commonly used word in the first century Roman world to describe an administrator of a large household or of a large estate. In other words, Paul's saying, this is my job. This is the reason I was put here on this earth to make the word of God fully known, which, by the way, is happening through my suffering. And so Paul, he was able to rejoice even in that suffering because he was fulfilling the call of God on his life through his suffering, which meant the gospel would advance. Because suffering, listen, it's one of the ways that our lives are identified with the life of Jesus Christ. And lest we think this only applied to Paul because he's somehow a superhero apostle, Peter said to the church, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. First Peter 2.21. So none of us is off the hook, right? Suffering for the sake of the gospel is our calling. It is one of the reasons that we're here. Not Listen, not suffering for the sake of suffering. I'm not talking about just being miserable, right? But suffering for the sake of the gospel. So uh, if you get the flu, you may well be suffering. But you're probably not suffering for the sake of the gospel. You're just miserably sick. And we're going to pray for you to get over that as soon as possible. Right? What Paul and Peter and Jesus and many others were talking about when they talked about suffering for the sake of the gospel was suffering because of the gospel. They were talking about persecution, which doesn't always mean, uh, by the way, physical persecution. Again, Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted... Right? For the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14, you see? Any type of hardship, even insults that are leveled against us because of the gospel, bring honor to God and identify us with Jesus Christ, which promotes his gospel. And so Paul is describing his own suffering here as an example and as an encouragement for Epaphras, this pastor and his church at Colossae who were also suffering for the sake of the gospel because in doing so they were actually fulfilling the call of God on their lives. So Paul says, listen, 
don't run from it. When you suffer for the gospel, don't run away from it because it makes you feel uncomfortable or unpopular or even rejected by the people or the culture around you. Remember back in verse 11, Paul talked to them about being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. You see, Paul didn't view his suffering as something to be escaped. No, he embraced it as a part of his calling, which was altogether unnerving to the culture around him, which prized comfort and ease and prosperity above everything else. It's not really so different from today, is it? And just like Paul's suffering, our suffering for the gospel is the kind of suffering that we should actually embrace joyfully because it means Jesus Christ is being glorified in us, thereby fulfilling one of the reasons that we were put here on this earth to begin with. Look, the truth is, the truth is, if you're actually living your life unashamedly as a witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you are absolutely going to experience suffering for the sake of that same gospel at points along the way. You absolutely will, because the message you represent will at times offend those around you. We'll talk more about that in a few moments, but listen, the only way to ensure that you won't suffer for the gospel is to live a life that affects no one for the sake of the gospel. You can be completely ineffective as a witness for Jesus Christ throughout your life and avoid suffering for the gospel. That is true. But you will at the same time completely miss out on your calling because that kind of suffering is a part of your calling. That is how it is meant to be. You, you understand, Jesus Christ reigned over all the earth while hanging from a tree on Golgotha. Suffering for the gospel is a part of our spiritual DNA. If you're a follower of Christ, your life is intended by God to represent Jesus Christ and his gospel in everything that you say and do, including in your suffering. That means at work, no matter how good or bad things are, what you say and do and how you say and do it should represent the life of Christ. At home, what you say and do and how you say and do it, no matter how hard it is at home, it should represent the life of Jesus Christ. When no one else is around and you're all alone, what you say and do and how you say and do it should represent the life of Christ. Look, even when you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off, and I'll just tell you, I might as well be the only one in the room right now because I'm preaching to myself. Even driving down the road, when someone else I'm convinced seems to be trying to kill me on the highway, what I say and do and how I say and do it should represent the life of Christ and without a doubt, when you represent Christ everywhere you go and everything that you say and do and how you say and do it, you will without question offend other people because of that gospel witness in your life. I know it from firsthand experience and I'm telling you, it's no fun at all. But even still, 
you can take joy in that suffering knowing that God has been glorified because of what you said and did and how you said and did it. So listen, don't, don't run from suffering for the sake of the gospel. In fact, embrace it even when it is the unpopular thing for you to do. It's what Paul's getting to next as he builds on this theme. So let's keep reading. Verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul starts out the next verse with him we proclaim, meaning Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of our message. That's it. All right, no more, no less. So when times are hard, we don't focus on the problems. We focus on the answer to every single problem, Jesus Christ. He is the sum and substance of our message, and in him, Paul says, is all wisdom. Okay, in, uh, in the Lycus River Valley where Colossae was located, there were these mystery cults who professed a form of wisdom higher than anything being taught by Paul and the other disciples, which was a significant part uh, of what was making its way into the local church there. And so Paul digs into that um, a bit deeper in the next section of the story, which we'll look at in a moment, but this reference to all wisdom here was Paul saying, listen, there is no other wisdom to be found outside of Jesus Christ. And yet there's an even bigger picture with these two verses, which is the fact that this is basically Paul giving us his own version of the Great Commission by Jesus himself in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, where Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Now, compare that with this passage in Colossians, again, Jesus, go therefore make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And Paul says, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, that's making disciples by teaching them all that he has commanded us. And Jesus said, behold, I'm with you always. To the end of the age. Paul says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. That's the spirit of Christ who Jesus says is with us always. That's, that's the spirit empowering Paul to carry out his calling. You see, he's reiterating the great commission here. Paul's reminding this local pastor in his church that making disciples is our calling. It is part of the reason that God put us here on this earth. Paul's saying in the midst of all this difficulty that you're struggling with, everything you're facing, please don't forget we are here to warn and teach it's Paul's way of saying, even when you're under the most intense pressure from the people and the culture around you, even from the people within the church at times, it is still your job to make disciples. And how do we make disciples? Jesus said, by teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And of course, Paul includes warning them in that command because a significant portion of Jesus' teaching was warning people about the realities of the cost of choosing, first of all, to follow him, 
but also warning them of the infinitely greater cost of choosing not to follow him. Which means teaching people all that Jesus commanded will inherently involve warning them just as Jesus did. You can read it in Luke 14. Uh, search through the Gospels and Revelation and just see how many times Jesus warned people about the realities of God's wrath and hell for those who reject him. Not to mention the numerous warnings of the cost involved for all of those who would choose to follow him. You see, our calling to make disciples is a calling to warn and to teach. And of course, we get the teaching part. We're okay. <laughs> We're okay with that. It's the warning part that we tend to avoid because that's the part of our calling that we're the most uncomfortable with. Right? That's why so many Christians today avoid anything and everything that might make them unpopular with the culture around them. That's why there are Christian authors and musicians and pastors writing books and songs and sermons that promote a version of the gospel expressly designed to offend no one. Even though the gospel is described in several places throughout scripture as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. You, you understand the gospel is supposed to offend us. That's the point, because it forces us to make a decision one way or the other, which happens to be one of the realities of our calling, the reason we're here. It's to tell people the truth that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And of course, Jesus told us plainly that many, in fact, most won't go along with that. They won't follow. Most, he says, will reject us and our message. In fact, the, the great pastor an author, A.W. Tozer, once said, I have preached myself off of every Bible conference platform in the country. Likewise, English author and evangelist Leonard Ravenhill, he was referring to Charles Finney, uh, the 19th century revivalist and one of the leaders of the Second Great Awakening. He said that Finney preached and sometimes the whole congregation would get up and leave. He said, that's good preaching. Well, you see, today... There are a lot of people who think that kind of preaching is unchristlike. And yet after Jesus preached a particularly hard message himself in John chapter 6, John says when many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, he said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. And in verse 66, after this sermon, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. John 6, 60 through 66. Okay, it is, it's an unavoidable truth. Your calling and my calling as followers of Christ is to teach and yes, to warn others about what awaits those who reject him and what awaits those who follow him. Yet I'm telling you, there's a prevailing attitude among our, uh, an entire segment of the church today who are altogether unwilling to share any part of the gospel that offends people. 
In fact, I personally know quite a few professing believers who have no problem whatsoever offending everyone in the church, but wouldn't dare offend an unbeliever with the truth about the wrath of God that awaits them as long as they continue to reject Jesus Christ. And the truth is that has become somewhat in vogue in the modern church today. Believers who will go out of their way to offend other Christians thinking they're being brave by taking a stand against church tradition while kowtowing to secular culture so as not to offend unbelievers. L listen, that's actually the very height of cowardice. If you're more embarrassed by the traditions of the church than you are convicted by the truth of the gospel, then you are not being brave. You're simply being immature as a, a disciple of Christ. It's why Paul says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Listen, I, I understand. I understand there is an aesthetic that goes along with some American church tradition that people in our modern culture do not like. The truth is there's some of that that I don't like either. And certainly there's always room for the church to improve its approach to the culture around it. Believe me, as a pastor, I get that. In fact, we, we talk about that and we make changes around here because of that all the time. But when you are more repulsed by that aesthetic in the church than you are by the effects of sin in this world to the point that you're not willing to warn unbelievers of the reality that is facing them then listen you're decidedly not fulfilling the call of Christ in your life to warn and to teach everyone with all wisdom even the hard parts that we may present everyone mature in Christ Listen, warning people about their fate should they reject the gospel. That is not cruel. That is not rude. That is not arrogant. It is actually the most compassionate act of grace that we could ever bestow upon another human being. Right? If you're in a building and it's on fire, warning the other people in the building that there's a fire, even if they don't believe you, that isn't arrogant. It's compassionate even if they mock you for it because they don't believe you. And Jesus said the greatest act of love we could ever commit is when someone lays down his life for his friends, John 15, 13. And one of the ways that we lay our lives down for others is by being willing to offend them with the truth of the gospel no matter how uncomfortable that makes us or them feel. And I hope you understand, hear me, I'm passionate about all of this. I hope you know that we always do that with hearts that are broken for the lost and through tears of love and compassion. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. This is our calling. This is why we're here. Let's keep reading. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. 
For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance, understanding, and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So Paul mentions the church at uh, Laodicea here, which was about nine miles away from the church at Colossae. And he includes it here because uh, those two churches, along with the church at Heropolis, uh, which was also in the Lycus River Valley nearby. These congregations were all very close with one another, not only in proximity or uh, ge geographically, but also in relationship, as Paul suggests in verses 1 and 2, because they were all started by Epaphras, right, which we'll see later in chapter 4. And so Paul is reaching out really to these other churches as well with this letter, even though it's primarily addressed uh, to the Colossians. But but there's another very important uh, message that Paul is sending in these two verses along with verse 3, which he talks about uh, when he talks about God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Okay, as mentioned before, there were these mystery cults that had become popular in the first century AD and they were thriving at the time in the Lycus River Valley. And so to be a member of one of these cults, they had a secret initiation rites that new members had to go through. And then once you were in, you were entrusted with so-called a secret religious knowledge that no one outside of the cult could know. They also practiced syncretism, meaning they would fuse other religious practices in with their own. And because there was a healthy population of Jews, as we saw last week, who observed the Mosaic law there in Colossae, the mystery cults were blending all of that together and bringing it into the church, convincing some of its members that they would have to join the cult and observe all these religious practices if they wanted true wisdom and knowledge from God. And of course, Paul knew all of that, which is why he chooses the words that he does in the first three verses, okay? He says, the only, the only mystery here is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And the Jewish traditions in the first century, uh, they prized wisdom above everything else, while the mystery cults of the Greeks prized knowledge above everything else. So Paul is saying to these church members, listen, everything you're looking for and everything that these cults are telling you you need can only be found in one place, and that is in Jesus Christ alone. You won't find it in secret initiations. You won't find it in the latest trends in spiritualism. You won't find it in some other version of the gospel. You won't even find it in the very best religious practices of the day. No, the only place you will ever discover true wisdom and knowledge is in Jesus Christ alone. And not only is that the only place uh, to gain understanding and knowledge that you're going to need in this life if you're going to follow Christ, but he says that's actually a part of your calling. That's why you're here, to continually gain understanding and knowledge of Christ. Well, why? Paul says, in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Now that's a, an interesting choice of words by Paul. 
Notice he doesn't say that no one will delude you with silly arguments, right? Or ridiculous arguments or delusional arguments. No, Paul says we must continually gain understanding and knowledge of Christ because there are a lot of plausible arguments being made against the gospel, which means we need to be equipped to respond to those arguments in defense of the gospel. Right? The apostle Peter said, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. First Peter 3.15. And when Paul uses the word plausible there, by the way, it's the Greek word pathanologia, which can also be translated as persuasive language. I think in the NASB they say persuasive arguments or enticing words. Okay, and so Paul was saying, look, there are plenty of persuasive arguments to be made against the gospel which may appear to even be logical but their conclusions are ultimately false and in fact uh, many of the well-known ancient philosophers like Plato were skilled at doing just that. They used persuasive arguments or plausible arguments to persuade people to follow them. Now, of course the truth is Christians do the very same thing but at the end of the day for our arguments to be legitimate they have to be based on objective truth rather than just lofty speech. And interestingly, even Plato warned his followers in Theodotus, uh, one of the dialogues that he wrote in 369 BC, he warned them not to accept conclusions in his words based on pathanologia, plausible arguments. Rather, he said on cogent proof, that is to say factual objective truth. And the key to doing that, according to Paul, is to commit ourselves to continually gaining understanding and knowledge of Christ. Uh, scholar Douglas Moo says how perilously easy it is for believers to be led astray by high-flown rhetoric or in our day by multimedia presentations. The antidote for such false teaching is the cogent proof of Christ's absolute supremacy and exclusivity. All right, look, the, the, the bottom line is this. There are more resources available to us today to explain and help us understand the scriptures in a deeper way than ever before. I mean, the, the, the internet alone is a wonder. And it can be a wonderful tool in making endless resources available to us at our fingertips, which I love and I use on a regular basis. But listen, none of those things books, blogs, videos, websites, sermons, none of those things that are about the Word of God can replace the Word of God itself. Okay, if you're filling your mind with media or books or other information about the gospel more than you are with the gospel itself, eventually you will be led astray by plausible arguments that are not founded in God's Word. And so look, the remedy is whatever time you spend accessing information about Jesus Christ and his gospel, great. But you should be spending exponentially more time accessing Jesus Christ himself through prayer and the gospel itself through his written word. 
I can tell you that of all the people I've ever met who follow some variation of the gospel today or some new perspective on the teachings of scripture, when I asked them how they came to that version of the gospel or to that perspective on the Bible, every single one of them will reference a book or an author or a preacher or a video or a blog, all kinds of sources except the Bible itself as their original source, which is very telling. There, there may be exceptions to that, but I haven't met one yet. And almost always these are well-meaning believers who've been led astray by plausible arguments, persuasive speech that integrates just enough scripture to seem legitimate. This is why it's so critical that we continually gain understanding and knowledge of Christ directly from his word so that we can not only refute false teaching, but also to be able to warn and to teach everyone around us, even if that causes us to suffer for the sake of his gospel. Okay? We all want to know why we're here. We all want to be able to fulfill God's calling on our lives, and yet you will never be able to take hold of God's calling for your life if you're not willing to take hold of what his written word says about your life. Yet we tend to obsess over these temporal things far more than we obsess over his word, which is exactly the opposite of how it should be because this life is so much bigger than all of those temporal things. And there's so much more at stake here than our personal preferences all along the way. Okay, the reason God put you on this earth, it's about so much more than what you can amass or where you live or the title or status that you achieve or the pleasure you derive from whatever you can get out of this world. You understand as noble as some of those things may be, those things are not your calling. No, your calling is to become the person that his word says he created you to be, which is someone who's not afraid to suffer for the sake of the gospel because you're far more concerned with fulfilling your purpose in this life than you are with being popular among your peers, right? It's someone who spends their time and energy and resources and talents trying to figure out ways to warn and to teach others all the wisdom and teachings of Christ Christ because your desire to see lost souls come to Christ is greater than your desire for personal comfort and ease. It's someone who is committed to continually gaining wisdom and knowledge of Christ because your love for the words of God is infinitely stronger than your love for the words of men. That is your purpose. That is your calling. That is why you are here. Let's pray.